millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tapkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 4th of June. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. So, Emily, how is Washington? I haven't asked you that recently. Have, have things returned to normal there in the way that they are in Europe? Yes. Um, you know, Washington, it's, it's, it's very surreal uh, to see people like eating back in restaurants and walking around without masks on. Um, but people are getting vaccinated and things are things are opening back up. And obviously, you know, we're aware that that's not true everywhere in the world. So I don't want to say like, oh, the pandemic's behind us. Um, but it, it does kind of feel here like we're getting to the other side of this. And and what about you? How is, how is Berlin? Similar. A, a, a little bit slower than the UK because the vaccinations didn't start as fast. But yeah, I mean, the restaurants have reopened for outdoor um, consumption and people are going back to offices. They're opening indoor spaces again from tomorrow. So yeah, it does feel like that, albeit very much not the experience of certain other parts of the world. Interesting. So this week in the New Statesman, we have a cover feature um, written by me, but also with other pieces on the state of the West. And this, we felt, would be a relevant question to ask ahead of the um, G7 summit next week as we record this. So it starts on the 11th of June, um, which will be followed by a NATO summit on the Monday of the following week, um, an EU summit after that, and then Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden meet in Geneva on the Wednesday, the 16th of June. So busy, busy uh, couple of weeks in international affairs, great for foreign policy nerds like us. And uh, yeah, a good time to, to ask, you know, with Trump gone, Joe Biden in office, more of a coherent agenda perhaps coming out of some of these summits. Does this mean that the disintegration or the fragmentation of the West that many diagnosed in the last years is 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 now being reversed in some way? Or is, is that too optimistic? So we have this cover feature. I've written an essay about it. We also have Gordon Brown, who um, writes on what can be done over the series of major summits this year. He talks about the G7, but he also talks about the COP26 Climate Summit in November. He talks about the Nuclear Proliferation Summit in August, and he talks about the G20, uh, which is also this winter. Would strongly recommend taking a look at that. And that's a subject we're going to discuss with our extremely well-qualified guest uh, in a moment. But first of all, Emily, what from the last week has caught your attention in world affairs? Well, I just wanted to flag um, that the Senate did not advance uh, a bill to have a commission to look into what happened on January 6th. January 6th, of course, being the day that the Capitol was stormed. The vote was 54 to 35 in favor of advancing the bill. But because of, due to Senate procedure, you need 60 votes. 
and there are only 50 Democratic votes. They were obviously not able to get 10 Republicans to vote with them. I would note two things. The first is that because of the filibuster, which is basically, this is an oversimplification, but basically the rule that says that you need 60 votes to advance, we are not going to get like this very basic thing, which is an investigation into why our Capitol building was stormed when elected officials were trying to certify the results of a legitimate election. And the other thing I would note is that uh, Democratic Senator Kristen Sinema from Arizona did not show up to the vote, like did not even show up to vote on the bill. Oh, man. She said that, right, so you have 50-50, you have a 50-50 split and one of your 50 isn't, like, she's not coming to vote. She better have she, had a really good excuse. Well, she, this is the thing. She hasn't, she said, oh, I, ha- I was with my family or I, I had a family reason. And like, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know her, her life and journey and there may well be, have been a reason, but like, you're an elected official. You are accountable to the public. It is not unreasonable to ask you to show up to this vote or to at least explain why you weren't there. So that is my uh, dispatch from, from American <laughs> democracy, such as it is. What did you note from this past week in world affairs? Briefly, it's worth noting that we've talked about it on and off over the last weeks, the latest twist and turn in Israeli politics. Uh, There is a coalition agreement uh, was reached uh, on Wednesday of a new government spanning eight different parties that would seemingly finally end Benjamin Netanyahu's Premiership of Israel, and it would be led initially at least by Naftali Bennett, an, an ultra nationalist, but it spans a whole array of parties, including an Israeli Arab party. Certainly never a dull moment in Israeli politics as ever, and we'll be watching in the next days as par- the, as the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, is due to, well, would need to um, endorse it for it to take office and indeed end, end the Bibi era. But let's watch, watch that as it develops. But also significant this week, I think, was the announcement that China is shifting from a two-child policy to a three-child policy. Famously, of course, the Chinese authorities restricted people to one child in 1979 to bring down the birth rate. They increased that to two children in 2015 as the population aged and as the challenge of the dependency ratio grew. And now because China's aging so fast, the government's increased it to a three-child policy. And I think this is interesting, not necessarily because it will change the trajectory of China's population growth. And in fact, demographic experts say that's unlikely. But because I think it shows China grappling now with rich world problems, um, it's shown that it can manage the challenges of growing from being a low-income country to a mid-income country, including bringing down the birth rate, albeit in its case in an extremely draconian and many would say barbaric way. But also, but now it's dealing with the challenges of becoming a rich economy and a rich society. And one of those challenges, which applies in many wealthy economies, is of course, increasing people's the birth rate to support an aging population. And I think that in itself is, is, a, is a significant shift and a, a sort of a, a little parable of our times. So with that, why don't you introduce our guest? I'm very excited to introduce our guest. We have a great guest this week. She is an adjunct fellow in the Transatlantic Program at the Center for New American Security and the Director of Programs at the Truman Center uh, and Truman Project. Please give a warm podcast welcome to Rachel Rizzo. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So to start out, you know, as Jeremy mentioned, we're looking to head to the G7 next week. We've talked about on this podcast before kind of what it means to have this multilateral forum now that Joe Biden is in office and, and Trump's not. And and I guess what, what I've kind of said is that, um, you know, we won't have like a meltdown from the American president at this meeting, but but what's more interesting is what, what constructive will happen, right? Like that, 
can the bar be picked up off the floor? I guess, how do you see the, uh, what, are you, what are you expecting to happen next week? Sure. So I think it's really important to remember the speech that Biden made to Congress a couple months ago, where he basically couched today's global challenges as a much broader struggle between democracies and authoritarianism. And so the G7, I think, is a a huge, well, this entire trip actually to Europe is a huge couple of weeks for for Biden and his team. And I think that this, uh, the G7 meeting and the subsequent NATO meeting and the bilats are going to be hugely symbolic. It's interesting that Biden is the second consecutive president to forego the tradition of making Canada their first international stop and instead is heading to to the UK and Brussels and Geneva. Um, And for Europe watchers like me, this is a really exciting time because I think it goes to show that the U.S. president really is prioritizing multilateralism, democracy, and the U.S.-European relationship more specifically. So I think there are a few things to look for and to potentially expect from each of these gatherings. Um, The G7, of course, I think the main discussion is going to be on post-pandemic recovery, of course, as these are the seven largest economies in the world, the richest economies in the world. A few days ago, Boris Johnson mentioned the need for an agreement on things like vaccine passports, although I'm not sure if we're actually calling them those uh, uh, going forward, and saying there has to be some sort of global treaty for pandemic preparedness. They'll be talking about a clean green initiative, which is meant to rival China's Belt and Road. And of course, there's going to be discussion about a global minimum tax. So I do think it's going to be really nice that we shouldn't expect any uh, emotional outbursts from the U.S. president this time. So it will be a much calmer meeting and a much calmer summit. But I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. How profoundly do you expect it to move on from from the Trump era? I mean, as you say, the the optics and the tone will almost certainly be drastically different from before. I mean, one, one thinks back to the, for example, the 2018 G7 in Quebec, where Trump um, disavowed the summit statement by Twitter shortly after leaving because Trudeau had said something he didn't like. Um, obviously, we won't have that. But looking looking at kind of what's sort of under the surface, do you think it will be, we're likely to say at the end of this, this was the summit that showed that the West is back? Because that's how it's being briefed by some government sources. I mean, apparently some in the UK and the US governments are going with the line, the West ain't dead just yet. And you've had other similarly op- optimistic uh, briefings coming out of other governments uh, in the G7. Do you think there's a risk that that might be overstated by the or might look overstated by the time we get to the uh, the end of the summit on on Sunday the thirteenth? Well, just because there's a new U.S. president who leans much more heavily towards multilateralism and cooperation with our allies doesn't mean that all of the the friction and issues that naturally happen between allies and partners just simply goes away. I mean, we'll we'll still have to deal with that. I, there's been a lot of discussion about the U.S. not exporting vaccines. I think we're we're, we're going to, but we've been getting pressure from allies on on that point, and I think that there is some friction there that hopefully we'll be able to overcome at the G7. But I think the the broader question is is messaging. I think that the most important thing coming out of this trip is going to be the messaging from the U.S. side. There is a huge amount of trust to build back with our European allies specifically, but I think 
our allies around the globe more broadly. And I think Biden is going to go to these meetings with that message. You know, at the NATO summit, for example, I would expect him to unequivocally support Article 5, which Trump repeatedly called into question over his uh, time as president. So just because there's a new president in the United States, again, doesn't mean that there are not going to be any issues, but it does mean that those issues will be able to hopefully be overcome more easily when you have a president who actually wants to overcome them. What do you, what do you think of the biggest subjects um, dividing the US from the Europeans or, or, or the, the EU maybe more specifically? Um, what, what are the biggest stumbling blocks for that sort of unity that, that, that many are proclaiming? Well, I think over the last few weeks, it's definitely been uh, vaccines. I think I think it was May where the Biden administration surprised the Europeans by releasing patents on on vaccines. And that kind of, I think, threw a wrench into current talks and made everyone realize that even though, you know, like I said before, we have a, a new president in office, there are still major issues with which we're grappling and that aren't just going to go away. But I, I do think that the the relationship is on the the mend. The reason I say that is that I you know I look at a few of the major issues that have come up over the last couple of months. One of which being Nord Stream two, of course, and the way that the Biden Biden administration handled that. Just for listeners who aren't familiar with that, that's the second of two direct gas pipelines from Russia to Germany, which many say undermine the likes of Poland and Ukraine. Exactly, and so. This pipeline that runs under the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany is sitting at 95% complete. And there was a lot of pressure being put on the Biden administration from Congress to institute sanctions against the Russian companies that are building the pipeline, but also eventually against German companies. And the Biden administration said that they're not going to do that. They did institute sanctions on Russia, but for for other things, not for, for Nord Stream. So you can see the Biden administration grappling in real time with wanting to build back the relationship and build back trust, but still dealing with a, a more forward-leaning Europe. Um, I would also put the Chinese investment agreement that was signed by China and the European Union in December in that same category, although there's, uh, it doesn't look like that's going to be ratified anytime soon. In fact, when you mentioned the the Biden administration's um, patent policy, it almost feels to me like a sort of mirror image of the the Europeans blindsiding of the of the incoming administration in December, where you have one side of the relationship comes up with a policy shift or a policy announcement that was clearly not coordinated with the other, even though it's one where you might expect some common ground. Yeah, exactly. But also, when I think of that, I I understand the administration, the US administration stance that they wanted the Europeans to wait on signing the comprehensive agreement on investment with China until Biden was in office. But then again, on the other hand, this agreement had been being negotiated for seven years, and Europe doesn't want to get caught in between a greater geopolitical power struggle between the United States and China. So that's something that the the administration over here is going to have to grapple with in, in the coming years. Obviously, a lot has changed with this new administration, but I do think, and you're welcome to disagree, but that there's still a sense domestically that Americans want a foreign policy that centers the the needs of Americans, right? You know, why why are we 
spending so much on defense for other countries? And why are we, you know, how can we have a foreign policy for the middle class, et cetera? How does the Biden administration balance that and that domestic constituency with building trust back with particularly with European allies? I think in the United States, we have to balance between wanting a strong relationship with Europe and also at the same time wanting the Europeans to have stronger foreign policy and uh, defense on their own. What ends up happening a lot of the time is the Europeans become more forward-leaning and try to institute their own defense projects, and they get a lot of pushback from the United States. And I think there's an opportunity for for the Biden administration not to do that, to actually encourage Europeans to become more forward-leaning and not push back against them when they do. And so it's going to be really interesting to see over the coming years how the administration deals with that. But I think the Europeans have an opportunity at the same time to uh, increase their defense spending still and do that without having to be constantly harped on by the Americans. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in the next few years. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. My second question was actually on this this balance between wanting Europeans to do more for themselves in terms of foreign policy and national security and also kind of wincing every time they act independently. So preemptively answered, uh, and I'll give it back to Jeremy. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's interesting following this debate from Europe because there's obviously been, there's been a number of interesting essays or long reads ap- appearing in various journals in the US sort of international affairs space in recent weeks about exactly how to manage this. There's obviously, I, I, I get the sense of, a, of an American administration that obviously wants to rebuild a relationship with Europe, obviously thinks that the contest with China is even more important than any other um, arena internationally, and is trying to kind of fit those together and trying to work out exactly how they fit together. And so you have pieces like, I mean, there was one, I think it was in foreign policy, I may be wrong, by Stephen Walt about um, in which he said that the US has to has to get off get Europe off its dependency on the US security umbrella and essentially said it doesn't, you know, it doesn't it doesn't strengthen the US for Europe to be so reliant, but also that that actually both Americans and Europeans need to credit Europe with being able to defend itself. That that actually we might underestimate Europe's ability to manage its own geopolitical neighborhood underestimate its ability to support the sort of um, military capacity that it would need, and also that it would need to, to defend the Western alliance in its border um, uh, arena, not just not just itself. And then you have others suggesting that Europe's just too divided. And there are plenty of cases you can point to, whether it's Russia, or China, or the Mediterranean, or relations with um, Turkey, for example, where the EU is incredibly divided. And, and one can sometimes look at those those points and despair and think there's no way that Europe will just will, will get a coherent policy together. At the end of the day, it will always fall back on the US. And then you have this other position, which Rachel, I think you sort of come close to a bit in what you've said, if I've understood it correctly. Um, there was also a piece published by the um, or sort of long read published by the Center for American Progress a couple of days ago, along these lines, which is that the US needs to, it needs to support Europe more to develop its capacity. And as you say, Emily, to not necessarily to give a sharp intake of breath every time Europe tries to do something on its own. So it's just sort of it's either you could either the security umbrella remains because Europe's too incapable to manage on its own, or you pull back quite rapidly to sort of shock Europe into realizing its own abilities. Or there's this sort of maybe this middle ground where it's like you kind of 
coax and nurture Europe into taking its own decisions and then encourage it when it does. Yeah, I mean, any, any thoughts from either of you on, on, on that? Well, there are a couple things here. I mean, I remember, I think it was last summer when the Trump administration announced that they were pulling out some troops from Germany, which I thought was a stupid decision and it was pointless and it was obviously punitive. But at the same time, you saw the response that happened in Washington and overseas that we were somehow abandoning our allies. And so I think that we have to try to balance between allowing the Europeans to do more, which ostensibly would mean that maybe the United States doesn't have as much of a, of a military footprint in Europe. And we, we shouldn't be seen as abandoning Europe, if that's the case. We're, we're not abandoning Europe. I mean, they're, they're, our, they're our closest ally and always will be. Um, I'm also looking at, um, you know, what happens in in Germany in September with with the election. Unfortunately, over the last few years, increased defense spending in in Germany or being pro-increased defense spending was sort of seen as this like pro-Trumpy, pro-American position. And so a lot of people shied away from it. But I'm hopeful that with a more forward-leaning Europe and a Germany who hopefully comes more comfortably into its position as the European economic powerhouse will be able to coalesce around this idea that uh, Europeans do need to spend more. And that does mean Germany at the same time. And then finally, you know, I think you look back at the Cold War and it was it was almost easier to have one strategic rival or strategic threat that every European country could sort of coalesce around. And I'm saying this, and I'm thinking of of the NATO alliance. The hard thing today is that we have two near-peer competitors, and every European country has a different approach. And so this idea that Europe is going to have a um, a coherent China strategy or a, a joint Russia strategy, I think is is a, a little far fetched, but at the same time, I think that there are um, compromises and there are places that we we can come together and uh, approach it in a coherent fashion. You you mentioned Germany. There's been an interesting development in the last few days in in German politics, where the co leader of the German Green Party, who, as regular listeners will know, stands a good chance of entering the next German government and might even lead it. Um, he's, it's not the chancellor candidate, it's her, her co-leader, Robert Habeck, went to southern Ukraine, to Mariupol, which is close to the, um, the, the essentially the front line, and was photographed wearing some sort of military, uh, wearing military protection. And it, it caused an outcry in the German press. Firstly, I think because this, this historical sense that it's so discordant to see a Green Party politician embrace sort of modern realpolitik in that way. Um, but he was also he was also accused by others on the left, including some of those the Greens might potentially do a government with for supporting a sort of imperialistic US-backed um, uh, Ukrainian government. And I mean, those those arguments are fairly familiar in German politics. But I think the most interesting thing is just that you are having a big debate in German domestic politics about foreign policy and about what a, an appropriate German role in the world is. And that in itself, it seems to me, is actually is a step forward. And the great, my great concern about the German election campaign is just that it ends up being, as it was in 2017, parochial and concerned with relatively small differences between mainstream parties on domestic policy. And you don't have the big discussion about what Germany's role in the world should be. So 
what everyone thinks of Habeck's decision to go to Ukraine, I think it, it, it reflected well on the Green Party's commitment to democracy and rule of law in international affairs. But whatever your view on it is, I think it's good to see this actually causing some some energy and some some light to be brought into the foreign policy debate here. I totally agree. And when I was watching the, I think it was the Atlantic Council event where Annalena Baerbach was speaking, and she was talking about how she supports U.S. troops in Germany and increased defense spending and German um, membership in NATO and a forward-leaning foreign policy. I mean, it sounded like she was attempting to bring the Greens into the mainstream and to show like this isn't sort of like a hippie party from the 70s anymore. It actually has very solid foreign policy ideas and economic ideas, and they they belong on the main stage. So I'm really excited to see what happens over the coming months. Something I'd like to hear from both of you on is um, what to expect from the meeting between Biden and Putin. Obviously, that's now the week after next, but it's part of this big first international trip by Joe Biden as president. And is the one perhaps over which there is the most uncertainty. I mean, what what tone do you expect? And this this goes to Emily as well, who has been watching U.S. relations and, and, is, and has a piece out on U.S.-Russian relations soon. What do you think will be Biden's approach? Does he go in there steely-faced to show Biden that he isn't the the poodle that Trump was? Or does he try and sort of just stabilize the relationship so as better to focus on China? What line does he take? And what do you think he wants to get out of it? I think two things are important to note. The first is that there have actually, as as bad as US-Russia relations are, and they are quite bad, there have been some soft signs um, uh, that things are, if not trending in a positive direction, then at least not getting dramatically worse. For example, there was the extension of New START, the nuclear treaty between the two countries. And when um, Secretary of State Tony Blinken met Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov for the first time, it was it was actually a pretty cordial meeting, right? It was not like the first meeting um, between the, US, the Biden administration and Chinese diplomats, which was like a multi-hour exchange of barbs. I think that, so that's that's one thing. The other thing that I would say is that I think that Biden will, you know, will play the role that Biden likes to play on the foreign stage, which is he has known these people for a really long time, right? And say kind of, I know you, you know me, let's try to, let's try to work together or not. But I think that it will be this, this kind of tough but fair familiarity. If I had to guess, that would be my, my guess as to where, the, as to Biden's posture in the summit. What about you? I think he's going to go into these meetings with Putin and Erdogan also towing a pretty hard line on human rights. And I think that's what I'm going to be watching closely. I think that there have been some positive occurrences in the US-Russia relationship, like you mentioned. But I think also Putin has been really testing Western resolve um, with the military buildup along the Ukrainian border with the announcement that they're going to institute, I think, 20 new military units in the Western military district. Um, and obviously, they say that's in response to Western aggression. So you sort you see this escalation happening. And I do think that the meeting between Putin and Biden is is an opportunity for, um, for de-escalation. But it's also going to be uh, an opportunity for Biden to go pretty hard on the human rights abuses. And you know, like I said, when I opened, Biden's view is that democracy is under threat and that we have to push back against authoritarian leaders who challenge democracies around the world. And so I think we should expect him to do just that. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman 
on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That brings us to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Our You Ask Us question this week, and I'll give you the first go at it, Rachel, is how appropriate is the G7 still as a global forum? So what is your view on that? Is this is this still a the right sort of steering committee for the West? Or or is this just a sort of a group of countries of shrinking economic weight in the world? No, I think I think there's a real opportunity here. And I think unfortunately the global pandemic perhaps made the G7 more relevant because we have an opportunity to ensure things like vaccine nationalism don't happen and to ensure that um, developing countries have have access to the same vaccine resources that countries like the G7 have. And so I think when you couch it in, in this context of what's happened over the last year, there's a real opportunity for the G7 to to come together in, in in this broader context and and really make a difference. And then, you know, looking forward to this summit of democracies that's that's happening in 2022, which I think should be just a summit of democracy. So you can invite maybe like civil civil society from from authoritarian countries as well. Um, you know, I, I do think it's an important forum for discussion and hopefully action. What do you think, Emily? How does, how does it compare, for example, with the G20? Because there was this, there was this big. I mean, we touched on this in our episode with um, Harry Lambert last week when talking about the UK. But but there was this idea around the time of the financial crisis that the G20 was the new the new G7 or the new or back then the new G8. Um, what do you think? I mean, they're they're different, right? And I think I'm going to steal from. We had David Miliband on the podcast a, a couple of weeks ago, and and basically he said. Uh, these these forums, these gatherings, whatever they only they only deserve to exist if something is done with them, right? So if the G seven is just rich countries talking and then taking their toys and going home, like that doesn't that, then it, then it's not the right gathering, right? Then it's not the right forum. But if they 
actually accept the responsibility of being wealthy leading powers and and let multilateralism and not nationalism guide the the, the next months and years as we come out of this pandemic then it is the right form right like it, it's to me the exact constellation in which they meet is less relevant than what they do in that meeting and obviously the one informs the other but but to me it's like if you want to say that the G7 is relevant prove it <laughs> You know, like it's you're the G7 countries do something with it. Yeah. And in some ways, the fact that Trump's no longer there strips the rest of them of the excuse that they have a different. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, okay, that's gone. Yeah. Show us what you got. Yeah. I mean, my own view on this is that we are probably entering an era in which we'll have a, a greater multiplicity of forums dealing with different issues. And you see that in this, uh, as I mentioned, Gordon Brown was talking about all these different summits these year that, that this year that matter for different things. And you have ideas for new formats and, and formations. I think that's inevitable in a, in a multipolar age. And I agree that the, the relevance of the G7 within that mix depends entirely on the, the ambition of those at the table you know, in wanting to maintain maintain it as a significant forum. One thing I will say is that uh, writing this this cover feature, I went back and looked at uh, looked through the history of the different G seven summits, and it is, I mentioned this just in passing, a fascinating sort of cross section of the history of the quote unquote West. You know, from from its foundation in the nineteen seventies, every single year, apart from last year, of course, a, a summit taking place whose declaration and whose dramas and whose maybe sometimes conflicts, tell you a lot about the state of mind uh, at the time and the, the shifting priorities. So you see things like the the rise of the first, the first mentions of the environment and climate change creeping into these declarations in the sort of late 1980s, early 1990s, the sort of the overconfidence of the 1990s giving way to these sort of the, the darker horizons of the 2000s and discussions of terrorism and the rise of other world powers, the financial crisis. And then, of course, most recently, the lurid dramas around Trump's participation in, in, in them. So I, if nothing else, it will, it will, I imagine, continue in that vein and that we will, we, will be, we, will, we will learn something important about the, the West as such in the next week or so. So it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Okay, so with that, we usually look ahead at this point to moments in the world affairs in the next week, but I think the G7 is so significant that we should just focus in on that. So why don't we, I'd, I'd like to hear from both of you, um, what will you be particularly looking out for at the G7? And for someone interested in world affairs following the coverage, what should they pay attention to, do you think? Rachel, what about, what do you think? I'm going to build upon what Emily mentioned in that she, I think she was talking, quoting David Miliband, where he said that, you know, the G7 and, and these fora for countries to come together only mean something if something actually comes out of it. So I'm going to be really interested to see what happens on the post-pandemic recovery. That's what I'm really looking forward to, to seeing. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I think when I opened, Boris Johnson recently talked about this need for a broader agreement on um, vaccine passports and how we can have like a global treaty for pandemic preparedness. So I'm going to be really interested to see what the, the, the G7 countries talk about in terms of post-pandemic recovery and then uh, pandemic preparedness as well. This is not the main thing, but we did mention very briefly at the beginning, which is the global minimum tax rate. So this is this Biden administration idea that, 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 that all countries implement, as the name suggests, a minimum tax rate uh, to you know, make it make it fairer and and not let corporations uh, have customers in the United States, but be based in say Ireland to avoid paying taxes. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that's discussed at the G seven and who who comes on board and who who's resistant, etc. 
What about you, Jeremy? I think that will be very important too. I think the there is talk of some sort of um, initiative for a Western answer or equivalent to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is this big infrastructure project run from Beijing, which involves trying to connect together new trade routes by land and sea between Europe and uh, East Asia through Central Asia and through the sea lanes to the south. And it's it's been a central plank of Chinese foreign policy and, and, and also China's outreach into other parts of the world and other economies um, where it's really gained influence by by supporting infrastructure projects. And these, by the way, also spill over into its relations with Africa and Latin America as well as as well as Central and Southern Asia. And it's been a challenge to the West because it's it's greatly increased China's influence and it's made China a to, to many leaders elsewhere a more attractive partner. And I think it, it will be interesting to see if the G7 does get the wheels rolling on something equivalent that, that that could rival the Belt and Road or could at least sort of look it in the eye as 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 something that would be significant if it in any way matched Belt and Road, but also just as a, as a sort of sign of the West's willingness to try and match what China has to offer um, to potential partners in the world. So I'll be watching that too. And of course, just the optics of the whole thing. How how do the leaders relate to each other in this new post, post-Trump era? What sort of um, place does Biden find for himself among among the others? So it's going to be a really interesting um, week or so. So let's just see what happens. If you want to read more about all of these issues, as mentioned, our cover feature this week is on the state of the West and what to expect from the G7 and the NATO summit. So you can read that at newstatesman.com. You can also listen to those recent episodes of World Review that we mentioned, also touching on these subjects at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. We'll have a special eve of G7 episode next week, which will also touch on all of this. Um, And one final point is that the New Statesman is very pleased to be a media partner at the Progressive Governance Conference next week, which is a major meeting of interesting and influential progressive figures from both sides of the Atlantic. It's uh, centered in or it's hosted from Berlin, but it's of course taking place digitally um, with some very interesting major speakers, including uh, Robert Harbeck, the Green co-leader who I recently mentioned, some um, important figures in transatlantic relations, um, the French Europe minister speaking. And you can register for that uh, at progressive-governance.eu. The New Statesman will be hosting several events there, so do check those out. And I'd strongly recommend it overall as as, as a great uh, place to go for thought-provoking discussion and commentary on many of the issues that we talk about on World Review. So check that out, progressive-governance.eu. With that, all that remains is to thank our guest, Rachel Rizzo. Rachel, thank you so much for for joining us today for this, I, to, I thought it was a fascinating conversation. Absolutely. Thanks to both of you for inviting me. That was really fun. Thanks, Rachel. You can also subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review, which will also be covering the G7 and the rest of Biden's trip to Europe. So do check that out too. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you for listening and until next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.